Okay, here we are, folks, with another edition of the Wacky World of Diabetes podcast. And I'm really happy to have David Panzer from the Helmsley Trust as my guest today. Welcome, David. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. So why don't you give our listeners a little history of how did you get involved in this wacky world? You know, what made you take interest? So like many of us, um, I have a loved one with the disease. I have my oldest daughter, Morgan, was diagnosed in March of 2007. Five months later, I became a trustee of what's now a $7 billion charitable trust. Not such a subtle message as to what I should be doing with my time. So I quit my career shortly thereafter and decided to do this full time. And if that wasn't motivation enough, my second daughter, Caroline, was diagnosed about three years ago at the age of 14. And, you know, it's to me, I really view this as I'm not a very religious person, but I really view this as my calling. I think the man upstairs had a plan and he wanted some loudmouth to be very disruptive. And I'm your guy. So so tell everybody about, because you have lots of different things going on. Tell them about each kind of pillar, silo, whatever you have there. Well, we definitely don't use the silo word. but <laughs> <laughs> So I think, you know, we really look, we really break it down into um, a couple areas. One is we, we really want to prevent or delay the disease. And we've been working on primary prevention. So meaning stop diabetes before you ever have autoimmunity. My daughter, Caroline, had all four of the antibodies for many years, and we knew that that once she had multiple autoantibodies, she had the disease already. She just wasn't symptomatic. We really started pivoting towards primary prevention like five or six years ago, and we're doing a very large study over in Europe across five different countries where we're screening 300,000 newborns for genetic risk for type 1. Those who are at genetic risk, we're, gonna, we're trying to enroll in the trial to see if we can intervene to slow or stop the progression onto autoimmunity or you know, symptomatic type 1. So that would be one major thing. We have a drug discovery area where we're looking at novel therapies to try and intervene and help people live better. And lastly, we have what I call it, you know, it's, it's almost like an improving lives or a living with T1D portfolio. And the main goal there is to ease the burden of managing this disease. I know you know this very well, but living with this disease sucks. It's a 24-7 grind. And I don't know of another disease where the patient and caregiver are making dosing decisions with a drug that can kill them. They make those decisions 24-7. And if they get it right 60% of the time, they're doing amazing. So you know, we really want to work on some of the tools and care models to make this disease easier to manage and live with. Now, when you got into this, I mean, you've been in this a few years now. What what have you seen over those few short years that makes you optimistic? And and on the flip side, what do you see that like you just like you just want to rip somebody's head off? <laughs> I see a lot of that. So let's start with the optimism. So when my first daughter was diagnosed in 2007, CGMs weren't here at all. Everything was finger sticks, and we were doing a lot of finger sticks. And then you fast forward to even where my second daughter was diagnosed a decade later, and you know G6 was here. Well, actually, I think it was G5 at that time, but G6 was on its way. The Libre was out. So I would say at least for our family, and, and I think the large majority of folks that live with insulin-using diabetes, these reliable CGM has made a world of difference. I can tell you having the Dexcom share, which is what my kids use, has changed our lives for the better. It's made all of our conversations, it's made our conversations around diabetes a lot less frequent because I know that my kids are safe. I can just look on my phone and I can see it. 
you all you also know about these automated insulin delivery systems that are going to again lift more of the burden off of the patient when we start to layer in people call it artificial intelligence or decision support. I call it take all my diabetes data and turn it into something actionable. So that is coming. It's already kind of coming now. And I think that that will also be able to take an engaged patient. And what I mean by an engaged patient, people who will take their insulin, wear the devices and do what they're supposed to do. And you can easily take anybody down from a double digit A1C down to an eight just by engaging a little bit. So I see the technology really helping people spend less time on their diabetes and live better and have better outcomes. What I'd say I'm not, I'm frustrated with is the academic silos that exist in research. They existed when I started, they still exist today. I'd say even in some cases, the companies where they act in their own interest, and I get it, their job is to return dollars to their shareholders. But at the same time, if you sell more of your product, you should increase your dollars to shareholders. And by making your product more accessible to more people, that should help the domino start to fall towards doing that. Yet it takes a painful amount of time for the companies to realize that. So you know, I, I wish that things would go a lot faster. I wish that, you know, and, and I, I have a really good relationship with the FDA and I fully understand that they have a really hard job in that nobody will pat them on the back for when things go well, but people will hang them for when things go bad, right? So they have no upside, but I do think that if they can, and they're trying to do this because they're very interested in patient reporting outcomes now, right? And I do think that the more they can take the perspective of the patient and the willingness for that patient to take the risk, it should expedite trials. You know, in my opinion, and I know you know this, David, but the clinical trials that get set in a hospital setting or, you know, some sort of sterile environment are not real life for people living with diabetes. And we were one of the first groups very, very early on to fund studies in diabetes camps because they were on teenagers who were going to beat the hell out of these systems. They were hormonal. They were active. They were all of these things that you need to pressure test. And we were huge proponents. And I actually went to the FDA myself along with Ed Damiano at the time to, and Stephen Russell to talk to them about funding studies in diabetes camps. And thankfully, they agreed with us and let us do it. So that was a long-winded answer. Sorry. No, that's okay. That's okay. We got all the time in the world. <laughs> You know, if you look at, you know, right now, obviously one of the hottest things is digital health, digital diabetes. There's a lot of viewpoints on this. Where do you, where do you fall? What camp are you in? What do you mean by digital health and digital diabetes? Well, you know, you know, do you, you know, some people view this as an algorithm driven kind of assistance, not a human kind of assistance. And there's other people who say, you know, you got to have a human involved. You know, it can't just be. Uh, yep. you know, an algorithm. And then there's what I call the split model, where like the algorithm kind of handles the easy stuff, but then it's kind of like an escalation when, oh my God, you know, we've identified through the data that this person just, you know, ain't getting it. You know, so where, where do you stand on that? Probably in the middle. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story of what, uh, who's now become a pretty good friend of mine, Dean Kamen said to me when I first met him back in 2008 or nine. And I went up there and I was talking to him and he said, okay, you took a plane up here. Everybody knows that a plane can fly itself 99% of the time. He said, what if I told you when you're going on your plane ride home tomorrow that that pilot's not getting on board? He said, are you going to get on that plane? 
He goes, let me answer that for you. Hell no, you're not. He <laughs> said, well, that's the motto that we need to build for diabetes. You can never have the human step out of the equation completely. You know, quite frankly, the sensors are not perfect. They do come off the rails once in a while. And the person has to be attuned to what's going on because they can get themselves in, in trouble. Sensors do have egregious errors. So I would say I do think the technology and the algorithms that you're talking about can go a really long way towards making this easy. I know plenty of people out there that are using either the DIY loop, and my daughter was on it for a number of years, and you know that system boluses for you and all of that stuff, and you don't really have to even bolus for meals. It'll eventually catch up. But I would argue that the person definitely has to stay, pardon the pun, but in the loop to really have it be the safest and most impactful. Now, in terms of, you know, there's been a great deal of debate about this, the role that social media is beginning to play in diabetes management. You know, there are people out there who say this is a major plus. There are others who say, well, this information is embedded. You know, what's your opinion on that? So... I think that we have kind of a dichotomy or a diversion of the haves and the have-nots. So like many other groups, and this isn't just diabetes, we have a very vocal minority that are not representative of the majority of people living with this disease. And I think you refer to them as the West Coast Mafia, which I, I don't know if you are now a part of that or not. Now no, no, no. no, no. I'm a Chicago guy. I just happen to live in San Diego. Whatever. Um, you're, you're on the West Coast now, but, you know, so... There, there's this group of folks that are, I'd say, you know, when you go and do surveys and, and you see things, they're, they're just, they're the vocal minority. And they, David, this isn't just in diabetes. This happens all over the place. And then there are those people who are living their lives with diabetes who don't want to hear about the latest and greatest technology because the cure was coming in year 2000, right? So they just turned all this nonsense off and they just want to live their lives. But these people who are the vocal minority are those who voices are easy to capture. So when the companies go and do kind of their research and their, you know, how to kind of do their UIs and how to do all these things and patient preferences, they kind of take the easy way out. And that is go to some of these groups that have access to some of these online users and survey them. The problem is if you're an online user, especially in diabetes, you've already self-selected to a, a, a couple bumps up the rung as far as engagement. And the majority of people that are living with diabetes live in rural America, do not see an endocrinologist. They see a primary care physician, and those folks are not represented by you know these surveys and or the public charities. Now, if you had to, let's say, you know, you look in your crystal ball. And let's say, let's go five years out. What really excites you today and that you think five years from today could just, I, I don't want to use the term game changer, but it will be extraordinarily impactful to people with diabetes. So I think if you asked me that, you know, five years ago, I definitely would have told you CGMs. And now, you know, having hindsight, that was pretty accurate and it was pretty telling. I think we're on the we're in the infancy of what these algorithms and automated insulin delivery systems can do and what we have to do which you know I know the companies are doing and certainly some of the funders are doing and we are is to fund these kind of head to head studies if you will of comparing an algorithm to what an endo would do and a, a you know a good endo like a seasoned endo and I can tell you that 
more than likely the algorithm is going to win almost every time. So right now, Driamet is the only FDA approved algorithm that's approved with pumping and CGM. And that information or recommendation has to go to a clinician first before it's pushed to the patient. We believe long-term that that goes straight to the patient and the patient will confirm it. And eventually it may very well get to a point where it just goes straight into as a command to the pump or the AID system. You know, I think we're a long ways from that um, because you have to verify that, you know, things are not jumping the tracks. But I do think, as I tell my kids and I tell everybody, I do a lot of speaking to newly diagnosed families, you know, what you do right now is the worst it's ever going to be for you. And it's only going to get better from here. And I wholeheartedly believe that. And we've seen it, you know, like any other thing. When you look at some of the advances in diabetes, right, we're coming up on the 100-year anniversary of insulin. I would argue in 100 years, we've done a really crappy job of advancing insulin, right? We, you know, we've sure, we got these analogs and it's better, but compare that to the last 10 years or 15 years of a smartphone, right? We're not walking around with a computer in our pockets and we can't even get an insulin that'll go on quicker than, quicker than you know, 40 minutes in the sub-Q space. Like there's got to be a way to do this. We got to be able to get temperature stabilized insulins. We got to be able to have these insulins that clear so much faster than two to five hours, which is what it takes now for sub-Q insulin. And I really view the clearing factor as one of the major gating factors to really getting good control. Now, now, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because, you know, the there there is a school of thought that says, okay, you know, yes, we'd like to have better insulins. Business-wise, it may not make sense, you know, because the insulin market has commoditized. So there are some who believe, kind of going back to what you said earlier, that, well, if we make the algorithms better, we can work with what we got. So how do you justify that? I'd say that that's, I mean, so what's good enough? I think it's very subjective to whomever's answering the, that question, right? I would argue it's not good enough. You know, you can, life happens, right? You give insulin and then you decide or something happens and you have to go run somewhere or you have to go do whatever. You were going to go eat and now you got in a car accident, right? There, There's no algorithm in the world that's going to be able to save you from those kind of things where life intervenes. So if you had an insulin that cleared quicker, you know, those kind of things would definitely have a dramatic impact. Listen, it's, I agree with you, the insulin companies, they're being commoditized as we speak, they're being kind of beat up in the media. And I personally think that it's a mistake. And I think it's short sighted. And it's the naive who are beating them up. Because if you look at what the insulin companies have done, and you know, if you look at what they selling insulin for now versus what they sold it for, you know, 10 years ago, and the net to them, to the companies themselves, it has not changed in, in 10 years, right? So that means somebody in the middle, PBM, healthcare company, et cetera, are, you know, kind of taking this to a different level that it shouldn't be. My fear, David, is that we continue to beat the crap out of these insulin companies to the point that there is zero margin and zero room for them to innovate because it's not worth it for them anymore. And I fear that that's where we're heading. Now, other than you're, you know, you're pretty focused on insulin using. Are you, are you dabbling? Are you, are you getting into, you know, GLP one users, orals, loans? I mean, is that, are you, are you, are you strictly staying in the insulin space? 
I mean, we have looked at other things. We are predominantly in the insulin space. You know, we do believe that anybody intensively managed with mule insulin, you know, should be using technology, whether that's CGM, CGM pump, or just CGM. You know, it doesn't matter. We believe once you're on short-acting insulin for meals, you should be using the technology. Okay. And then, you know, maybe maybe you can tell people a little bit about, can they help you? Is there a way they can help you? I mean, let's say somebody listens to this and says, you know what, that's a group I want to be involved with. How, what, would you, what would you tell them? Because obviously, I'm assuming you don't need money. We do need money. <laughs> Listen, I'll tell you a funny story, David. Years ago, we met the first CEO of the Gates Foundation, Patty Stonecipher. This is probably over 10 years ago. And she came and met with a, the group of, our group of trustees. And she, she said three things that I will never, ever forget. She said, we're the Gates Foundation. We're $45 billion at the time. I don't know what they are today, but they were 40 or $45 billion back then. And we can't solve anything. We don't have enough money to solve anything. And I'm thinking to myself, geez, you guys are like 10 times the size of us. Like I'm feeling really insignificant. And the second thing she said was, you know, you really have to ask yourself, is this the best and most impactful way to use every dollar that you spend? And I really have held on to that because it, it, we really do think about it all the time, right? If, if Gates doesn't have enough money to solve and we're, you know, whatever, one-tenth of them, how can we solve? So we really do. And the third thing is, you know, can you turn your dollar into five? Can you get other funders? Can you get other groups to fund with you? So to answer your question, we have had groups fund side by side with us to an institution. We don't take money. We're not a public charity, but we can co-fund projects. We have done it with for-profit companies. We've done it with nonprofits. We are, we're all about bottom line, what's best for people living with this disease, period, full stop. Well, that's great. You know, and you know what, David, it's been a pleasure and an honor and a privilege and all that stuff. And I'll, you know, I'll tell all of my listeners that we'll have on the website, you know, if you want to get in touch with David or his organization, we'll make sure we, you have all the information. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Thanks, David. Good to see you.